Well, turn with me to Matthew 12. We started with verses 43 to 50 last time. As we look back over chapters 11 and 12, we've seen that the theme of these two chapters has been the rejection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and they didn't just reject him, they went so far as to say he was satanic. And as a result of their accusation that he was satanic, they were unforgivable. And Jesus says they're doomed forever by their conclusion that he's of Satan and they would not be redeemed. And so then starting in verse 43, chapter 12 concludes with Jesus' response to that ultimate rejection. And before he begins a brand new section in chapter 13, Jesus speaks to them with what really amounts to an invitation. Because in the midst of the multitude that's there, there are going to be some who would actually believe, some who would listen, some who would respond. So the purpose of this section can be summed up very simply. It is to warn them not to listen to the religion of the Pharisees, the moralists, but instead to come to Jesus Christ. There's a big difference. On the one hand, you have mere reformation. On the other hand, you have a relationship. And those are the two points, the danger of reformation and the power of relationship. So we'll begin by looking at reformation in verses 43 to 45. This has to be one of the most fascinating little parables Jesus ever told. And here in this parable, the Lord gives the results of morality, the results of the ethical, religious approach to things. So he says, let's read them, the danger of reformation, verses 43 to 45. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. But then, then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Now, who does Jesus identify in verse 43 as the main character of the parable? The evil spirit, the unclean spirit. Unclean spirit is a demon, a fallen angel, one of Satan's supernatural evil subordinates. And dwelling, with it, so dwelling within this man in the parable is a vile, wretched, unclean, demonic spirit. And in this case, this one goes out of the man. Text doesn't specifically tell us how or why. Uh, I think that we will see the best explanation as we move through the story. But the spirit has gone out, he leaves, and then he walks through waterless, dry places, seeking rest, but does not find it. Now, since unclean spirits do not need food and water in the same way humans do, the waterless places here figuratively represent desolation, barrenness, extreme discomfort. And notice that Jesus says the unclean spirit is seeking rest and does not find it. Uh, there's a restlessness with this spirit. He seeks refreshment. It's as if he needs a place to work out his filthy activity. And, and so this disembodied demon is restless until he can find a place back in a human life. I think that's a very important thing for us to note uh, because Jesus is saying, in effect, that demons go in and out of men and seem to be more at home in them than out of them. And so the demon decides in verse 44, I will return to my house from which I came. It's an interesting statement because it calls the, the demon calls this person my house. Uh, this demon perceived that the man in whom he indwelled belonged to him. Uh, so that tells us that demons not only function within men, but apparently they can take up a somewhat permanent residence there. That's where we stopped last time. So let's continue. Verse 44 continues, and it says, And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Now, I believe that phrase is the key to understanding what's going on in this parable. Uh, why did the demon leave in the first place? Well, apparently, the man went through some kind of a moral reformation. Uh, in some way, he cleaned up his act. He got rid of some really evil vices. And people can do that, you know. Uh, they can stop doing all the evil they could be doing. They can clean up their act because of the fearful consequences of their sin. Uh, perhaps they're threatened with jail or divorce or bankruptcy. 
uh, or they're developing a serious health condition that threatens their life, or whatever it might be. And so, so they try and do their best that man can possibly do to straighten themselves out. And that's why we have things like New Year's resolutions. That's why we have a why we had a drug campaign with the slogan "Just Say No." Um, there are calls to moral behavior. Uh, I mean, even prostitutes may stop their prostitution and try to live a respectable life. Criminals may give up their crimes and try to be respectable citizens. Uh, there is in the hearts of some people the capacity to sort of reform themselves, to abandon their past practices in search of a better goal. That's why some people are able to stop drinking, stop doing drugs, stop bar hopping and running with the wrong crowd. They, they have a health scare or a fear of going to prison or their family members are pressuring them to think about their children. And religion may even be a part of it. Uh, he may actually be responding to religious pressure. I may have been exposed to some religious group or church. He admires their life that seems to be so on track and peaceful. And he knows his own life is turmoil and pain. And so he decides to reform himself, to give up his evil behavior and join that group. It's very possible that even though this is clearly a parable, there could have been a genuine elements that Jesus used to build upon. And so it may have been that Jesus was using an example of someone whom he had cast out a demon, because we know he healed people that were not necessarily saved. Uh, remember the ten lepers that he healed. Only one came back and was redeemed. Uh, so it may have been that Jesus was using an example of a man of whom he had cast out a demon. But my feeling is that Jesus is illustrating here an external kind of cleansing, a moral reformation, a kind of clean-up-your-act approach. And in a great sense, that is precisely what happened as a result of the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, when John the Baptist came preaching repentance, it says that all of Jerusalem and Judea went out to him at the Jordan River. And they were confessing their sins and repenting and being baptized with the baptism of John. But many, if not most of them, were not truly receiving the Messiah. They were just cleaning up to get ready to receive him. They were sweeping out the house. They were adorning the house with their reformation and their repentance and getting their life right in anticipation of the coming of Messiah. But when the Messiah came, the vast majority of the people never let him in. And so they just sat there, all cleaned up and adorned, but refusing the entrance of the Messiah. And the ultimate end of it all is in verse 45. The demon goes and takes along with it seven other demons more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Uh, the man never let Christ come in to fill the empty place. Uh, the key word in verse 44 is unoccupied. You see, that's, that's mere reformation. Uh, they would not receive Christ. This was a superficial, external morality, but there was no place for Christ, no room for him. And many of them had come to John the Baptist and repented and been baptized, and of course the Pharisees were preaching the gospel of morality without Christ. Now let's stretch your thinking a little bit by looking at Acts 19 for a moment. <clears throat> Acts 19. This would be somewhat typical. And of course this is much later in the development of the church. But an incident takes place that feeds into this story. Verse 1 tells us that Paul arrived at Ephesus and he found some disciples there. And so he says to them, verse 2, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard if the Holy Spirit is being received. Think about that. They haven't even heard about the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, And he said, Into what then were you baptized? In other words, what baptism did you have? Because if you'd been baptized into the body of Christ, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, you would have no doubt heard about the Holy Spirit. In fact, you may have seen manifestations of the Spirit, as others did. So, into what baptism were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. In other words, they were baptized with a baptism of repentance 
in the wilderness, preparing their hearts for the Messiah, <clears throat> but as of yet, they didn't even know who the Messiah was. So the house was swept, it was put in order, but there's nobody home. Verses 4 and 5. Then Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, they believed in Jesus Christ, and the empty place was filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' parable may reflect, or relate at least, upon that preparation ministry of John the Baptist, where in a sense the cleaning up of the life and the demons go out when that moral reformation takes place, because a vile, wretched, unclean, evil spirit might not be at home in a person trying to live a moral life. And so the demon leaves initially. But if Christ doesn't come in, that place stays empty. And then eight demons are going to come back. It's going to be worse than it was in the beginning. So then the empty house speaks of the spiritual vacuum that is created when people get moral but don't know Christ. And the reason it's more dangerous than immorality is because Jesus says that instead of having one unclean spirit, you get eight back. The, a religious, self-righteous, moral person becomes a victim of Satan in a way that an immoral person doesn't. You say, why so? How can it be worse to be moral? Simply because of this. The sinful person who is aware of his sinfulness is much more cognizant of that sin than the moral person who has no such awareness. What happens is that when a person becomes self-righteous and moral, he then loses the sense of fearfulness about evil. He then feels himself beyond the, the activity of Satan, so that Satan's forces can come in in mass without that individual ever being aware or vigilant or prepared to deal with it. And you notice in verse 45, it says, they go in and live there. Uh, the Greek word translated live means to take up residence and become established, to settle down and be at home. In other words, they're comfortable there. They, they're entrenched. It's the exact same word Paul used in Ephesians 3.17 where he prayed for the, the Ephesians that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. So these demons come in and they find their permanent home to settle down in the heart of a moral person. It would be better for the person to have been immoral and face the immorality of his life than to be living under the self-delusion of personal morality and be demon-infested. <clears throat> Listen to the words <coughs> of Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus over in Matthew 23:15. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Why so? Because the disciple who is discipled into self-righteous legalism is usually more committed to it than his teacher. The, the person who is new at it is usually more committed to it than the one who's been around a long time and has figured out all the loopholes. Uh, Jesus says, you are already sons of hell by your morality without Christ, and you're making double sons of hell out of your proselytes. Morality makes a person a son of hell, and the more you are subscribed to self-righteous morality, the more you intensify your hellish relationship. Now listen carefully, because what I'm about to say isn't all that popular in evangelical Christian circles these days. I don't believe that the church's message is one of morality in a vacuum without Jesus Christ. That is the message of the Pharisees. 
And sadly, I think many American Christians have adopted the same message. They want to restore morality in our nation without a corresponding commitment to Jesus Christ. I don't think it would accomplish anything if we hung the Ten Commandments on the wall of every public school and opened the school day by having all the kids repeat the Lord's Prayer but never proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. God has called us to preach the gospel. Jesus didn't preach morality. He preached salvation through repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ. We are not called to make America a moral nation by political action. I'm not interested in making America moral without Christ. All that does is give people a false sense of self-righteousness, while at the same time increasing their prospects for damnation. There is a sense in which, in a certain way, it is better to be immoral without Christ than moral without Christ. It's better to be irreligious than religious. I find it much easier to reach someone who's overwhelmed with their sense of sin than to reach someone who is overwhelmed with their sense of righteousness. When I was working in law enforcement, I found that the filthy, immoral, vile sinners that I encountered on the street were usually far more willing to listen to the gospel than anyone else. Why? Because they understood they were sinners. They knew they weren't righteous. They wanted someone to tell them how to get relief from their burden of sin. But the police officers and the deputies that I worked with were some of the hardest people to reach because they saw themselves as morally righteous, far better than those alcoholic, drug-addicted thieves and criminals they dealt with every day. They looked down on them, and they didn't see their own sinfulness. Now, understand, I'm not saying that we shouldn't promote moral behavior. But we need to make sure we do by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only means by which any community, any society, any culture, any nation will become a truly moral place in which to live. You can't promote morality without Jesus Christ and accomplish anything but creating self-righteous people who are doubly damned to eternal hell. By the way, keep in mind, immoral people didn't blaspheme Jesus and call for his crucifixion. Immoral people didn't plot his execution. The prostitutes didn't do it. The thieves didn't do it. The tax collectors didn't do it. The murderers didn't do it. The religious people did it. That's the curse of morality. Moral, religious, self-righteous people, confident they are holy in themselves, are utterly deceived into believing that Satan has nothing to do with them, and so they have no vigilance, no protection, and they can be swarmed by demonic hosts. And verse 45 says that the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Listen, self-righteousness and morality is a curse that ties men down and draws them away from true conviction that can bring salvation. Let's look at an illustration over in 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2. Here we have a picture of some people who came to Christianity and they listened to the message of Jesus Christ and they have a head knowledge. And it says in verse 20 that they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice that it doesn't say that they have been cleansed or that they have been truly purged of sin, but rather by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, they know and understand the standards of the Lord, and through their exposure to Christianity, they have escaped the world's pollution. So they have cleaned up their act. They've gotten religion. They started living the Christian moral code. But if they are overcome and having again been entangled in them, then the last state has become worse for them than the first. Verse 21. For it would be better for them 
not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Why? Because you receive greater judgment if you have a greater amount of knowledge. So not only is there an intensification of demonic activity, but there's definitely an intensification of judgment on that moral person. That's essentially the same message you'll find in Romans 2. And then Peter gives a proverb to illustrate this, what he said. Verse 22. The message of the true proverb has happened to them. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Morality without Christ is like a dog that will eventually go back to its own vomit. Morality in and of itself is like a sow who goes back to the mire. It's like taking a big hog out of the muck, giving it a bath, painting its toenails pink, putting a ribbon around its neck, and then letting it loose. That pig is going to go right back to the slop that it came from because there's no change in its nature. And a dog may wear a rhinestone collar and a little sweater and have its nails painted too, but you may find it licking its own vomit because there's no change in a dog's nature. People who escape the pollution of the world on the outside may intensify the damnation that awaits them because they have an empty inside. They're like lepers with no sense of pain and don't even, and they eventually rub off their fingers and toes and they don't even know it. Self-righteousness desensitizes people to sin to the point that they're not even aware that their very soul is rotting away under demonic corruption. And so I think Jesus is warning the people who were in that multitude that day who might still be open to hearing his message, and he's saying, don't follow the path of the Pharisees. Don't follow their lead into a moral life that is void of Christ, or your end is going to be worse than your beginning. And that's the way it's going to be, because the end of verse 45 in our text says, that is the way it will also be with this evil generation. I believe he has in mind there the very people to whom he spoke, the people at that time. This group of people was going to be living proof of that. Their end is going to be worse than their beginning. They're going to become demon-infested, judged by God, and of course it got worse and worse, and finally their eternal souls would be lost in hell forever because they had morality and left an empty place in their hearts. During the Babylonian captivity, the Jews forsook idolatry. And in the more than 2,000 years since then, they have never, as a people, fallen back into it. But by the time their Messiah came, they had become so satisfied with their reformation and their religious ceremonies and moral traditions, they saw no need for a savior. Consequently, in the end times, that people will find themselves in league with the Antichrist during the tribulation until he finally turns on them and another holocaust takes place. Only then will the survivors finally turn to Jesus as their Messiah. Whether in the broad range of history or in an individual life, the same principle applies. Outer reformation without inner transformation brings susceptibility to even worse evil than that from which one turned away. When I was a captain on the police department, I had a man who worked for me who was known for his serial womanizing. He was married. He had three sons. He'd inherited a great deal of money from his grandfather. He didn't actually need to work, but he did so because he had a strong work ethic. But he was constantly running around on his wife, committing adultery with every woman he could. And finally, his wife found out, and she filed for divorce. And he was suddenly faced with the possibility of financial ruin. And in distress, he went to see a mutual friend of ours who was a Christian. And that man sat with him and shared the gospel with him while he cried his eyes out and he begged God to forgive him 
and restore his marriage, and he even claimed to have trusted Christ for salvation, and he cleaned up his life. He walked and talked differently. And another Christian co-worker of ours came to me and asked, have you heard about his profession of faith? I said, yes. Now let's wait and see if it's real. The test will come if his wife goes through with a divorce and he suffers great financial loss. How will he respond then? Well, his wife went through with a divorce, but his attorney was able to save him from financial ruin. And within six months after the divorce was settled, he was back to his womanizing ways, this time as a single man. And he would brag about his immoral behavior. In fact, one time when the husband of one of his adulterous women found out about their relationship, the husband threatened to report him to his boss, who happened to be me, uh, in order to get him in trouble with his employer for conduct on becoming a police officer. So to head off that possibility, he came to me first and told me what had happened. And when he finished, he said, well, from my understanding of the laws and the rules and regulations, I haven't broke any state laws or any department rules or regulations, have I? And I thought for a moment, and I said, no, none that I can think of except for the laws of God. He laughed and said, well, you know, I've never been one to worry about those, have I? And I told him, no, you haven't, but you should be, because one day you'll have to answer for them. And he just laughed and turned away and left. That man is an example of someone who cleans up their life morally and even claims a religious reformation, but it was all just self-willpower and it was only for personal benefit. And there was not genuine repentance and faith despite the claims of such. And such claims do not last and the person's true nature is revealed to still be the same and his moral and evil behavior was even worse afterwards than it was before his supposed conversion. And that's how Jesus said it would be. Reformation, folks, is not salvation. It is not regeneration. It is not redemption. In fact, it may only increase the very opposite. In order to have true redemption and true regeneration, there must be a right relationship. And so the Lord finishes with what I believe is a beautiful invitation, and it was made possible in the setting there by the arrival of Jesus' family, his mother and his brothers. And so we now come, have to consider the power of relationship, verses 46 to 50. It says, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Now someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of his father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. The arrival of Jesus' family gave him the perfect opportunity to give a graphic illustration of the need for personal relationship to him. So while he's speaking to the crowd, which included some Pharisees inside a house, with many more outside Mary and her other sons, Jesus' half-brothers, show up outside and it says they were seeking to speak to him. So here's his family. Matthew 13:55 tells us their names. They were James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. So Mary had four more sons after Jesus, and Matthew 13:56 tells us he had sisters also. So Mary had at least seven children five sons, and at least two daughters, because it says sisters, plural. So she had at least seven children. I'm explaining this because the Roman Catholic Church teaches what they call the doctrine of perpetual virginity, which says that Mary was not only a virgin before Jesus was born, but that she remained a virgin throughout the rest of her life. And they deny that the men who are listed multiple times in Scripture as Jesus' brothers are his physical brothers, and instead claiming that they are spiritual brothers in the same manner as all the men in this room uh, who are believers in Christ are my spiritual brothers. Uh, but that doesn't make very good sense because Mark 6.3 makes it very clear that they were his physical brothers and sisters 
because they're identified as his family that everyone in the community knew. And, and there are other passages as well, uh, which we'll look at again when we get to Matthew 13, 55 and 56. But the text doesn't tell us why they were there, but we can assume why. They were concerned about him. They loved him. Oh, it tells us in John 7, 5, that his brothers did not yet believe he was the Messiah, but they certainly they cared for him. Uh, and Mary knew, and she loved him. Jo Joseph had probably been dead for many years, uh, and so Jesus would have taken over the support of his mother during the time that he worked as a carpenter. Uh, but now he was gone from home, and his brothers would have taken up that responsibility. And so the word perhaps came back to them that Jesus had really gone too far now. Now he was rebuking the religious leaders of the nation to their face. In Mark 3, 21 and 22, we're told that when his family heard of the things he was doing, they went to take custody of him because they thought he'd lost his mind. Uh, they, thought, they thought he had become mentally unbalanced. And so the family that knew him best, his own family, were saying, he's gone off the deep end. He's lost his mind. He's going too far. And the Pharisees are saying that he's demon-possessed and casting out demons by Satan's power. And so Mary and his brothers came, probably prompted by Mary, on a rescue mission to try and get him out of the situation into which he was getting himself so deeply entrenched. They knew he was being accused of terrifying things. They, they could see the imminence of his death, and they wanted to help. And so they came, and they stood outside and told someone they wanted to see him. Now, if you're using the ESV, you will notice that you're missing verse 47 in the text. Uh, that's because a few manuscripts are missing that verse, but the absence is easily explained because, you see, in the Greek, the last word of verse 46 and the last word of verse 47 are exactly the same word. And so a scribe who was copying the text may have read the last word of verse 46, wrote it down, and when he looked back, he saw the word at the end of verse 47, and that thought that's where he left off, and started copying from there. Every other translation includes verse 47, because the doubt about whether it belongs there or, there or not is tenuous at best. Uh, but for whatever reason, the ESV translators chose to leave it out. However, that doesn't affect us, because most of us here are using the New American Standard, or the uh, Legacy Standard Bible, like, which I'm using, uh, both of which include it. So let's look at verse 47. It says, Now someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Now frankly, from a human perspective, that could have been rather embarrassing. I mean, to be a grown man and to be teaching and exercising tremendous authority against these Pharisees and scribes and unbelievers, castigating them with blistering, dynamic, dramatic language of judgment, and suddenly, this guy comes in and says, your mother and your brothers want you. That might be a little embarrassing, or else it, it could be a little frightening. You might wonder, what could possibly be so important that would interrupt me at a time like this? I thought about it like this. It would be as though I was standing here teaching, teaching you here on a Sunday, or preaching from the pulpit, and suddenly in the middle of it, Terry comes up to me and says, Marsha and your sons are outside and they need to see you. There'd be all kinds of thoughts that would go through my head. Why were they interrupting me at such an important time? This is embarrassing, so whatever it is, it better be important. Uh, it must be important because I know Terry wouldn't interrupt me unless he thought it was extremely important. So, <laughs> so something, yeah, is there something wrong with one of our grandchildren? All these thoughts would go through my head. But that wasn't a concern for Jesus. First of all, as God, he would have known that Mary and his brothers were going to show up like they did and exactly why they came. But as always, he was the master of every occasion. He's the master of every situation. This was not a time for mothers and brothers to dominate his life, even though they cared and loved him. This was a time for preaching a message that needed to be preached, and they gave him this opportunity. So in verse 48, 
it says, but Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd been in the crowd that day, I think my first reaction would have been to say, now he's really gone off the deep end. He doesn't even know his own family. Or I may have taken it to mean this guy's renouncing his family. He doesn't have anything to do with them. But that's not at all what he meant. He is not denying the reality that they were his family. He's not saying that he didn't love them. In fact, he loved them more than they loved him. Uh, we know he loved them because he redeemed his brothers. Uh, it was not until after the cross and the resurrection that they really believed that they did come to believe in him. His brother James became the head of the Jerusalem church, and his, little, his brother Judas wrote the little epistle of Jude that is a part of inspired scripture. Uh, and his statement certainly does not indicate that he had no affection for Mary because as he's hanging on the cross, one of the last things he did in terms of taking care of his affairs as the oldest son was to be sure that Mary was handed over to the care of John. So we know that he loved them. But what he is saying is that earthly, physical relationships are not an issue with him. When he asks the question, who is my mother and who are my brothers, He's really saying, who is genuinely related to me? Who is really a part of my family? Who truly has intimacy with me? Who can really put demands on me in regard to responsibility and fellowship? And in verse 49, he answers his own question. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. In other words, do you want to know who's truly related to me? There they are. They're related to me. They're my family. They're my spiritual family, and that's the real family that matters. You see, even being a member of Jesus' own earthly family did not merit salvation by virtue of that relationship. Thus, Jesus' invitation extended to both Mary and his brothers because they needed to be redeemed just like everyone else. They too need to be saved from sin. Apart from personal faith, they were no more spiritually related to him than any other human being. He was saying relationship to me is a spiritual issue. And all of those and only those who believe in me are spiritually related to me. What Jesus is offering here is a relationship as opposed to simply a reformation. He is the only one who can fill that empty place. And so he gets their attention with his little dialogue about his mother and brothers, and he says, you need to know that the only people who are truly related to me are those who believe in me. And then the question immediately comes up, how do we get that kind of relationship? How do we become one of your family? How does that happen? And so in verse 50, he simplifies it in a beautiful statement. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. For whoever. Aren't you glad that word is there? That indicates the universality of the invitation. No one who believes is excluded. And on the other hand, no one who does not believe will be included. <laughs> God's first and foremost absolute desire and requirement for mankind is belief in his Son. In John 6, 29, Jesus said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Until a person believes in Christ, God cannot give him any spiritual help, and that person cannot give God any spiritual service. So Jesus says, to be related to me is not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. And these people who believe in me are related to me. And how do we get that relationship? By doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. They were asking for a sign from where? From heaven. And the Father has given them a sign from heaven. And that's why he says this. What is the will of the Father in heaven? 
Let me show you what it is. Go back to Matthew 3, 17. Matthew 3, 17. At Jesus' baptism, it says, Behold, there was a voice out of the heavens saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What's the will of the Father who's in heaven? That people on earth acknowledge Jesus Christ as his Son. What's God's will? That they should accept Jesus as his Son and be as pleased with him as God is with him. In Matthew 17, 5, over a few more pages, while in the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice of God again comes out of heaven, and this time a bright cloud overshadows them, and a voice comes out of the cloud, and this is what the Father says. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's the same statement as in chapter 3, verse 17, with the addition of listen to him. So what's God's will? that you recognize the Son, that you believe in the Son, that you have a faith relationship with the Son. God's will is that in believing through the Son, you might have eternal life. In Luke 19.10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Now that's a, that's a pretty good insight into the will of the Father, isn't it? Jesus said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6.38. And now he says, I have come to save the lost. Therefore, the will of him who sent me is to do what? Save the lost. Matthew 18, 12-14. He illustrates it. He says, what do you think? If a man has 100 sheep and one of them is going to stray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that is straying? And if it turns out that he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. In this way, it is not the will, is it not the will, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. It's the will of the Father that you hear the Son. It's the will of the Father that you believe in the Son. It's the will of the Father that you be saved. It is not the will of the Father that you perish. Doing the will of the Father in heaven, then, is simply coming to salvation in Christ. Second, John, Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. First Timothy 2.3-4 says, God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. So God's will is that people be saved. But being rightly related to Christ requires more than mere verbal declaration of loyalty. Back in Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus warned, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Notice that some of the, notice that, that the people who say, Lord, Lord, there aren't even truly saved. And they're going to come and say, Lord, Lord, but they're not going to enter the kingdom by what they say but rather those who enter the kingdom do what by what? Doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. It isn't what you say, it's what you do. And doing the will of the Father is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving the gift of salvation that he offers. That's the invitation of Matthew 12. So you contrast the danger of mere reformation in verses 43 to 45 with the power of relationship in verses 46 to 50. And that's why you can have a Pharisee who doesn't cheat and lie and steal and commit adultery, who gives tithes of everything he possesses, who fasts twice a week and goes to hell because he swept up the place and set it in order, but he's empty. And on the other hand, you can have a tax collector who's an extortioner and an adulterer and a cheat and a liar who's committed all sorts of sin and he'll go to heaven because he's repentant and he has Christ on the inside. And when Christ comes on the inside, he cleans up the life. Cleaning up the life superficially on the outside is only going to intensify the probability of damnation. In Acts 4.12, the Apostle Peter put it so succinctly. 
and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's the name of Jesus. The only message heaven ever had was that Jesus was the way of salvation. All the rest of the scriptures surround that major message. There are plenty of people out there calling for morality. There will be plenty of pastors who today will call for general morality in our nation from their pulpit. We're to be calling for a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because from that is our message, and out of that relationship comes true morality as generated and affected and maintained by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think many American Christians wish, I know it goes through, we wish for a return to the outward morality that our culture enjoyed for so long because it made life easy for us. Let me just say the real test of the genuineness of your salvation and your faith in Christ comes in a culture that despises Christ, that is evil and wicked. That's when the purity of your salvation is proven. And that brings us to the end of this section. Any questions or comments before we go? Nope. Yes? You don't see uh, evil spirits entering people's like I'm glad that you said that. I'm glad you said that, Jim. Well, I'm glad you said that. Because we think that unless there are cases of demonic possession that are severe and, and extreme, uh, but as we saw last week, I talked about the fact that it's clear from what Jesus said in this parable that there are various degrees of wickedness among the demons. So a person can be possessed or influenced by a demon and be walking around as a nice moral person on the outside. But their demonic activity is they're, they're depraved, you know, and, and they don't have to be demon-possessed all the time, but they are influenced by demons tremendously. And just their, depra their depraved flesh just feeds into it. But there are those severe cases, and I think there are more severe. There are more cases of demonic possession in the United States than we want to admit. We we will change it to the, t the terms to severe mental illness or uh, a very evil, wicked person who's out there, and they're drug addicted and everything else, and they're assaulting people and doing all kinds of things, and we'll say, well, he's, he's drug, it's the drugs that are doing it to him. It's not just the drugs. And, and so I think there's more than we admit to. Now, you get into other countries, uh, and you see more of the biblical types of demon possession that you see. Like Mike Schott. With encounter. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 They only show themselves, if they show themselves in a post-world country, then the lost might believe there's a spiritual realm and may seek the I don't, I, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. No, a believer cannot be possessed by a demon, because he has the Holy Spirit residing in him. Um, now, so he can't be possessed. Now, demons may attempt to influence him from external ways, but not internal possession. 
You can't have, what place has light and darkness? What place has, you know? Yeah, greater is he who is in you than he is in, who is in the world. Yeah. Yes, Barry? Uh, the demon activity, internal light, you know, just uh, well known. Uh, I'm just wondering if that has any kind of comparison with the uh, Ephesian church uh, account in Revelation 2. Well, he lost your first love, uh, Revelation 2 4. Be kind of, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Their ministries. I don't know. I think churches can do a good job of that without having demons. <laughs> we can leave our first love real easily. I'm not, yeah, I'm not denying that there is not <laughs> physical mental illness. I'm not denying that. But I'm just thinking that I, what I think is that we are far more willing to say mental illness than to consider the spiritual aspect. of Because we're, we're at war with what? We're not at war with the flesh. <laughs> we're, we're at war with a spiritual battle against the forces of powers of darkness. All right, let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that every one of us in this room would examine our own hearts, make sure that we are in a personal relationship with you and not mere outward reformation. Lord, I pray as we go now into the worship service, that you would fill our hearts with praise and give honor and glory to you, the one through whom we have a personal relationship to you, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.